You are listening to KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. It's three o'clock. Stay with us for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. And today is March the 21st, 2006. 2006. That's what it is, 2006. And um, I have before me today piles and piles of important things, so important that I never know, I never know which is most important. I think that's the difficulty. We have to narrow everything down until it means something. Today, the only thing that rings in my ears and rings and rings is this Revelation of yet another massacre on the part of the Marines. The U.S. military, the Marines, apparently decided to uh, revenge themselves on Iraqi families. The death of one of their own prompted them to uh, go into the homes and shoot families uh, in their pajamas, in their bedclothes. Uh, it's the sort of thing that brings us brings us to the Bible. Would you believe that those of us who love poetry are even capable of reading the Christian Bible? Here's Ecclesiastes. Here's what he says. I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of such as were oppressed. And they had no comforter, and on the side of their oppressors was power. But they had no comforter. Wherefore I praised the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. I think the phrase we used to use uh, in the old days was, yes, when we envy the dead, that is when... Uh, life is its grimmest. I think of the old Queen Margaret in one of Shakespeare's plays. It hit me like a uh, bolt between the eyes once when I was trying to act the play. The old woman says, oh, let me die to look on death no more. I hadn't thought of that. You know, you don't have to watch. Once you're gone, once you're um, out of the picture. Never mind. Um... I want to uh, do something silly today. I have to. I don't know why. I just, uh, <laughs> I can't do what I plan to do. 
Uh, I was going to define fascism. I have pages and pages because I have some letters from KPFA listeners. They want to define fascism. Uh, I just think we can settle for authoritarian rule and, you know, capitalism and government become one, that sort of thing. But uh, what I wanted to do was go back to an old, uh, what is that? Uh, what do we call them? Misogynist. I want to go back to Arthur Schopenhauer, one of the great philosophers, German philosophers of the uh Earlier times, let's see, Schopenhauer was born in 1788 and died in 1860. And he shaped the ideas that we had to cope with in the 20th century and which are echoing, echoing down into the 21st. You can still hear these old dudes. Uh, what was it? Edith Wharton, the great writer. Um, let's see. She's the same age as Artie. No, not quite. Let's see. She was born in 18... Yeah, she was born when he died. That's what I remember. I remember uh, thinking that uh, she was, what is it, not a hundred years later, but she's a couple generations later. Uh, she was born in uh, 1862. And she was reading Schopenhauer once, and uh, <laughs> her notebook says, How strange it is to rummage in all that old metaphysical lumber. I don't know, is it so very old, folks? I have the feeling that um, this stuff has never left us. Let me see. Let me read to you uh, a little bit of Artie Schopenhauer's essay on women. I keep this essay in my notebook uh, for the month when we celebrate International Women's Day because I think it is important to remember uh, that men do have an opinion on women, and that we are still uh, the target of these opinions. Uh. <laughs> okay, right. Um, here is Schopenhauer's essay of women. He writes, Schiller's poem in honor of women is the result of careful thought. Uh as an expression of the true praise which should be accorded to them, it is, I think, inferior to the few these few words of Joy's. Quote, Without women, the beginning of our life would be helpless, the middle devoid of pleasure, and the end of consolation. And then he goes on to quote Byron at great length. Uh, <laughs> Lord Byron, yes. The very first of human life must spring from woman's breast. Your first small words are taught you from her lips. Your first tears quenched by her and your last sighs too often breathed out in a woman's hearing. When men have shrunk from the ignoble care of watching the last hour of him who led them. Yes, indeed. Ah. <laughs> uh, Schopenhauer says that... Uh, the right standpoint for the appreciation of women is, quote, You need only look at the way in which she is formed to see that woman is not meant to undergo great labor, whether of the mind or of the body. She pays the debt of life not by what she does, but by what she suffers, by the pains of childbearing and care for the child, by submission to her husband, 
to whom she should be a patient and cheering companion. The keenest sorrows and joys are not for her, nor is she called upon to display a great deal of strength. The current of her life should be more gentle, peaceful, and trivial than man's, without being essentially happier or unhappier. Women are directly fitted for acting as the nurses and teachers of our early childhood by the fact that they are themselves childish, frivolous, and short-sighted. In a word, they are big children all their life long, a kind of intermediate stage between the child and the full-grown man, who is man in the strict sense of that word. I mean, see how a girl will fondle a child for days together, dance with it, sing to it, and then think what a man with the best will in the world could do if he were put in her place. With young girls, nature seems to have had in view what the language of the drama calls a striking effect. As for a few years, she dowers them with a wealth of beauty and is lavish in her gift of charm at the expense of all the rest of their life, so that during these early years they may capture the fantasy of some man to such a degree that he is hurried away into undertaking the honorable care of them in some form or other, as long as they live. A step for which there would not appear to be any sufficient warranty if reason only directed his thoughts. Accordingly, nature has equipped woman, as she does all her creatures, with the weapons and implements requisite for the safeguarding of her existence, and for just as long as it is necessary for her to have them. Now here, as elsewhere, nature proceeds with her usual economy, for just as the female ant, after fecundation, loses her wings, which are then superfluous, nay, actually a danger to the business of breeding. So, after giving birth to one or two children, a woman generally loses her beauty, probably indeed, for similar reasons. So we find that young girls in their hearts look upon domestic affairs or work of any kind as of secondary importance if not actually as a mere jest. The only business that really claims their earnest attention is love, making conquests, and everything connected with this, dress, dancing, and so on. Now, the nobler and the more perfect a thing is, the later and slower it is in arriving at maturity. A man reaches the maturity of his reasoning powers and mental faculties, hardly before the age of twenty-eight. A woman at eighteen. Then, too, in the case of woman, it is only reason of a sort, very niggard in its dimensions. That is why women remain children their whole life long, never seeing anything but what is quite close to them, 
cleaving to the present moment, taking appearance for reality, and preferring trifles to matters of the first importance. For it is by virtue of his reasoning faculty that man does not live in the present only like the brute, but looks about him and considers the past and the future. And this is the origin of prudence, as well as of that care and anxiety which so many men exhibit. <laughs> this, I'm interrupting Artie Schopenhauer here. Artie Schopenhauer, born 1788, died 1860. A man whose fellow centricity uh, just brims over in this essay. He's a Freudian fundamentalist. If there ever was one, uh, I cannot resist. Uh, yes, going on, he has a great deal of material here that describes uh, her as intellectually short-sighted. Um, yes, he says, uh, yes, uh, she may in fact be described as intellectually short-sighted because while she has an intuitive understanding of what lies quite close to her, her field of vision is narrow and does not reach to what is remote so that things which are absent or past or to come, have much less effect upon women than upon men. This is the reason why women are more inclined to be extravagant, sometimes carry their inclination to a link that borders upon madness. <laughs> Indeed, yes. I have another footnote here. I'm thinking of Mary Lincoln, Abe Lincoln's wife and her uh, extravagance. Boy, would she run her credit cards off the off the rails. Anyway. Artie Schopenhauer goes on to say, In their hearts, women think that it is men's business to earn money and theirs to spend it, if possible, during their husband's life, but at any rate after his death. The very fact that their husbands hand them over their earnings for purposes of housekeeping strengthens them in this belief. Uh... However, many disadvantages this may involve. There is at least this to be said in its favor, that the woman lives more in the present than the man, so that if the present is at all tolerable, she enjoys it more eagerly. This is the source of that cheerfulness that is peculiar to women, fitting her to amuse man in his hours of recreation and in the case of need to console him when he is borne down by the weight of his cares. Another note here, my favorite, uh, uh, the classic line my father would always quote. <laughs> yes, he would say, yes, recreation for the warrior, darling. You must be recreation for the warrior. Aha. Uh -huh. Now, here is where Artie Schopenhauer begins to, um, uh, what is the word, uh, he begins to look into himself. Um, he begins to see that women are useful, but he has to, to say so in a way that does not give them any serious weight or dignity. He says, It is by no means a bad plan to consult women in matters of difficulty, as the Germans used to do in ancient times, for their way of looking at things is quite different from ours. 
chiefly in the fact that they like to take the shortest way to their goal, and in general, manage to fix their eyes upon what lies before them, while we, as a rule, see far beyond it, just because it is in front of our noses. In cases like this, we need to be brought back to the right standpoint, so as to recover the near and simple view. <laughs> He goes on. Then again, women are decidedly more sober in their judgment than we are, so that they do not see more in things than is really there. Whilst if our passions are aroused, we are apt to see things in an exaggerated way or imagine what does not exist. <laughs> Now the footnote here. He seems to be saying that men are likely to get carried away with their emotions. Now, if I remember correctly, that was what was held against women when I was a young woman, uh, back in the days of the uh, feminist revolution. They kept saying women couldn't couldn't be given positions of responsibility because they were uh, emotionally labile and confused. You know, time of the month, anyway. Schopenhauer goes on to write, The weakness of woman's reasoning faculty also explains why it is that women show more sympathy for the unfortunate than men do, and so treat them with more kindness and interest, and why it is that, on the contrary, they are inferior to men in point of justice, and less honorable and less conscientious For it is just because their reasoning power is weak that present circumstances have such a hold over them, and those concrete things which lie directly before their eyes exercise a power which is seldom counteracted to any extent by abstract principles of thought, by fixed rules of conduct, firm resolutions, or, in general, by consideration for past and future, or regard for what is absent and remote. Accordingly, they possess the first and main elements that go to make a virtuous character, but they are deficient in those secondary qualities which are often a necessary instrument in the formation of it. Hence, it will be found that the fundamental fault of the female character is that it has no Sense of justice. <laughs> He goes on. Arthur Schopenhauer goes on at great, great length um, to talk about woman's powers of reasoning and deliberation. Uh, <laughs> oh dear, this stuff is so funny. He says, perjury in a court of justice is more often committed by women than by men. It may indeed be generally questioned whether women ought to be sworn in at all. From time to time one finds repeated cases uh, everywhere of ladies who want for nothing, taking things from shop counters when no one is looking and making off with them. <laughs> yes. Nature has appointed that the propagation of the species shall be the business of men who are young, strong, and handsome, so that the race may not degenerate. 
This is the firm will and purpose of nature in regard to the species, and it finds its expression in the passions of women. There is no law that is older or more powerful than this. Woe, then, to the man who sets up claims and interests that will conflict with it. Whatever he may say and do, they will be unmercifully crushed at the first serious encounter. For the innate rule that governs women's conduct, though it is secret and unformulated, nay, unconscious in its working, is this. We are justified in deceiving those who think they have acquired rights over the species by paying little attention to the individual, that is, to us, the Constitution and therefore the welfare of the species have been placed in our hands, committed to our care, through the control we obtain over the next generation, which proceeds from us. So let us discharge our duties conscientiously. But women have no abstract knowledge of this leading principle. They are conscious of it only as a concrete fact. They have no other method of giving expression to it than the way in which they act when the opportunity arrives. Their conscience does not trouble them so much as we fancy, for in the darkest recesses of their hearts, they are aware that in committing a breach of their duty towards the individual, they have all the better fulfilled their duty towards the species, which is infinitely greater. Since women exist in the main solely for the propagation of the species, and are not destined for anything else. They live, as a rule, more for the species than for the individual, and in their hearts take the affairs of the species more seriously. This gives their whole life a certain levity. The general bent of their character is in a direction fundamentally different from that of man. And it is this which produces that discord in married life which is so frequent and almost the normal state. <laughs> I have more footnotes here. There's a wonderful essay by Sigmund Freud called Disloyal to Civilization. It's all about the reasons why women have to undercut the patriarchal structure, why they are basically subversives in a culture where they are not the uh, the primary author or authority or... Uh, what is it? They are not sovereign in this world. Uh, now, uh, Arthur Schopenhauer goes on to write, The natural feeling between men is mere indifference, but between women it is actual enmity. The reason of this is that, well, it's trade jealousy. In the case of men... It does not go beyond the confines of their own particular pursuit. But with women, it embraces the whole sex, since they have only one kind of business. Even when they meet in the street, women look at one another. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like enemies. And he goes on to uh, tell stories. I think of the hilarious uh, play by Oscar Wilde in which... Uh, the two young women meet, and they're very polite, of course, but then one of the men characters says, uh, women never call each other sister until they've called each other a great many other names first. Uh, he says that um, women behave with more constraint and dissimulation than two men would show 
Hence, it is an exchange, uh, it is in an exchange of compliments between two women that you will find a much more ridiculous proceeding than that between two men. Uh, whilst a man will, as a general rule, always preserve a certain amount of consideration and humanity in speaking to others, even to those in a very inferior position, it is intolerable to see how proudly and disdainfully a fine lady will generally behave towards one who is in a lower social rank. Uh, the reason of this may be that with women differences of rank are far more precarious than with men, because while a hundred considerations carry weight in our case, in theirs there is only one, namely, with which man they have found favor. Another one of my footnotes here, Napoleon always said that women have no rank, that their rank is determined by the men with whom they find favor. <laughs> yes. Uh, there is there is this strange truth, you see, behind everything that uh, Artie Schopenhauer is describing here. Uh, at worst, he's talking about a slave mentality. At best, he's talking about a social hierarchy, uh, the pecking order, let's call it. Uh, oh, he goes on to say, it is only the man whose intellect is clouded by his sexual impulses that could give the name of the fair sex to that undersized, narrow-shouldered, broad-hipped, and short-legged race. For the whole beauty of the sex is bound up with this impulse, this sex impulse. Instead of calling them beautiful, there would be more warrant for describing women as the unesthetic sex. Neither for music, nor for poetry, nor for fine art have they really and truly any sense or susceptibility. It is a mere mockery if they make a pretense of it in order to assist their endeavor to please. Hence, as a result of this, they are incapable of taking a purely objective interest in anything. The reason of this seems to me to be as follows. A man tries to acquire direct mastery over things, either by understanding them or by forcing them to do his will. But a woman is always and everywhere reduced to obtaining this mastery indirectly, namely through a man, and whatever direct mastery she may have is entirely confined to him. And so it lies in woman's nature to look upon everything only as a means for conquering man. And if she takes an interest in anything else, it is simulated, a mere roundabout way of gaining her ends by coquetry and feigning what she does not feel. Hence, even Rousseau declared, women have in general no love for any art, for they have no proper knowledge of any. And they have no genius. No one who sees it all below the surface can have failed to remark this. You need only observe the kind of attention women will bestow upon a concert, opera, play, the childish simplicity, for example, with which they keep on chattering during the finest passages in the greatest masterpieces. If it is true that the Greeks excluded women from their theaters, they were quite right in what they did. At any rate, you would have been able to hear what was said on the stage. <laughs> in our day, besides, or in lieu of saying, let a woman keep silent in the church, 
It would be much more to the point to say, let a woman keep silence in the theater. This might perhaps be put in big letters upon the curtain. <laughs> okay, uh, I will save the rest of Artie Schopenhauer for another time. He goes on, of course, to say that women never get beyond a subjective point of view. And what he says is uh, eerily true in a sense, you see, because uh, in his day women were truly the second sex. Uh, and if you look around the earth today, women are still burdened with, uh, what is that, uh, Socio-political underprivilege, yes, that name, we used to use that name for penis envy, yes. It's really socio-cultural underprivilege. <laughs> Once again, this is Jennifer Stone. I've been reading to you from a wonderful essay called Of Women by the late great Arthur Schopenhauer, a German philosopher who understood women better than he thought, actually. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Drop the shadow out of And you're listening to KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KSVF in Fresno online at kpfa.org. Stay with us for free speech radio news. This is free speech radio news for Tuesday, March 21st, 2006. From KPFA in Berkeley, I'm Brian Edwards Teeker.